Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's title is When Pigs Fly, The Absurdity of the Present. So Aaron, that's a fascinating and intriguing title. Uh, What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about pigs, all things to do with pigs, how to care for pigs, how to raise pigs, how to eat pigs. No. (laughs) Well, uh, we're not going to talk about pigs. I have owned a few little pigs in my day, Um, but there's a saying that floats around, it's been apparently been around for three or 400 years and not just in English, but in other languages. And it's the phrase, when pigs fly. And that phrase is supposed to capture the idea of absurdity. It's like, yeah, when pigs fly. So if you looked at a pig, a pig is essentially a cylinder of meat, bone, and fat. (laughs) It's not exactly the kind of creature you'd expect to fly. It has stumpy little legs and a little snout on it. So the idea of a pig flying is absurdity, and yet pigs are flying in Canada and the U.S. and the U.K. And what I mean by that is we live in a culture of absurdity. I mean, almost daily, we encounter the kind of nonsense that you almost think it's satire, the kind of things that people are saying, the kind of things that are being permitted in our schools. It's like, man, we live in a culture where pigs fly. Everything is absolutely absurd. And then the next day you wake up and there's something even more ridiculous that you're being exposed to. So what I want to do is discuss the reason for the demise of sanity in our culture, the demise of thoughtful, well-reasoned, sober-mindedness from a biblical perspective. And what we're going to see is that the the more a nation drifts from God, the more we literally lose our minds. Mm -hmm. So the absurdity becomes normalized. The nonsense becomes normalized. And yet at the same time, there's a great opportunity in the present for us to proclaim the truth and to bring about uh, life change through the proclamation of the full gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's our subject. Awesome. So I know we've talked about some strange things on the show before, and sometimes when we do that, it can be a little depressing. And we don't want the show to be depressing. That's not the idea. (laughs) But we do need to kind of highlight some of these things. So maybe we can chat, list a few of the things that are so absurd uh, that we've seen in the broader culture in the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can get people really riled up and make for good news uh, headings by just talking about the nonsense that's taking place in our culture and and we want to, um, you know, be be proactive in our uh, in our response. But let's just let's just throw out a few. So economics. One one of the most absurd things said by Canada's prime minister in the last few years is when he said, uh, "We've took on the debt, so you don't have to." So just think about how absurd that is. The government's money is our money. That's how it works in a country like ours. So they tax us. They have a pool of money which is then supposed to be used for public services and paying public servants and all that sort of thing. And the idea that you would say that we took on the debt so you didn't have to, it's it's nonsense. It's an absurd statement. It, it demonstrates either a complete ignorance towards how economics work, or it's just a flat-out lie to try to smoke and mirrors, to try to detract people from the fact that the government's decisions is causing massive debt on a, on our whole country and not just in Canada 
The same thing happens in the U.S., especially with the, the Democrats, right? They just take, take, take from from the taxpayers and then give, 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 and then expect a pat on the back for it and just ramping up and amping up the crippling debt. So that's that's an example of nonsense. Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the New Democrat Party in Canada, is also guilty of this, where he like he's blaming inflation and he's blaming the rise of grocery store uh prices going up on the corporate grocery store giants. It's like it's their fault. Wow. You know, they're it's like somehow they're responsible for the inflation of the Canadian dollar, the um carbon tax, which means that fuel to transport and to harvest is gone through the roof. On and on and on. So it's such a simplistic, absurd comment. And unfortunately a lot of people buy into it. Okay, let's talk about racial issues. So one of the things that's uh, in the media right now is the, the very tragic uh, killing of uh, murder, really, of Tyre Nichols. I mean, everything, I watched part of that video, and it, it seems pretty clear-cut. Like, this, this man was murdered, and he happened to have a dark skin. Um, I, I, I don't really like this whole black-white language, but I'll use it because that's what people use. So he's a black man, and he's beaten, the, he, he's beaten up so bad by five uh, American black police officers that he dies. And, okay, so you have six people in the mix, five are police officers, one is a civilian, they're all of the same skin color, and yet somehow, somehow in the absurd, nonsensical minds of the far left, this is an act of white supremacy. Somehow they have the capacity to climb inside the mind of people and to determine motive and background. So you hear all sorts of people saying, well, we know they weren't, we know they weren't white officers that killed a black man, but well, they're influenced by a culture that uh, penalizes black people or spends a whole lot more energy arresting and killing, I guess, black people. And it's just like, come on. Like, are you telling me you, like, you see racism in everything, even among members of the same visual I guess they call it minority or majority, depending on where you're at. It's it's nonsense, Chris. And then mm -hmm. we have biology. We've talked about this a lot. Mm -hmm. We know there's two sexes. There's males and females. Everybody knows that. But all of a sudden, we create this fake category called gender, which is somehow different than maleness and femaleness. And apparently, there's a growing number, up to 70 genders now. So contrary to the objectivity of your biology... And people are like, what about intersex people? Okay, yeah. So the point zero 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 one percent of people where there's a genetic glitch and they're born with male and female parts. Okay, well, we can talk about that as a separate issue, but that's not what the trans movement is about. Mm -hmm. This is about someone who's clearly a man wanting to be a woman or clearly a woman wanting to be a man. And we somehow, in this absurd, bizarro world that we live in, have convince people you can actually pick your sex, but we'll use the word gender because now we we have a new word we've made up to 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 permit this. Well, would this logic apply to uh, species? So for example, biologically, scientifically, by every objective standard, you and I are human beings. Can you imagine a world within which we would say, well, you're humanness is not actually objective. So if you want to pretend to be a cat, 
you can be. Oh, actually, that isn't very theoretical, is it? It's happening, right? Yeah. So the point is that we live in a world where something as objective as maleness and femaleness is now being subjectivized. Something as objective as being from a particular species <laughs> is no longer objectivized. It's subjectivized is, is mm. what I should say. It's up to you. You can just literally deny the most basic aspects of reality, maleness and femaleness, humanness. And apparently you can be a cat or a dog or a lion or whatever you want to be. And we have educators saying, this is okay. This is perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. It's like, folks, give your head a shake. This is bizarre. This is absurd. This is a world within which pigs are flying overhead. And then we have the whole uh, medical legal apparatus, which is often intermixed. I'll give, you, I'll give this illustration. This, this is where, this is an example of where law, which is supposed to be trustworthy and pretty objective and founded in eternal sources, i.e. the Bible, becomes contradictory and nonsensical and absurd. So we have a code in Canada called the Canadian Criminal Code, and it kind of lays out criminal acts. It defines what's a criminal act. And it has a whole series of paragraphs. This is a criminal act. This is a criminal act. This is a criminal act. And in section uh, 223, there's a, uh, a write-up here. It's entitled, When when Child Becomes Human Being. So what, what it's wrestling with is, what if someone kills a mom and she has a six, seven, eight, nine-month-old baby inside of her that's not yet born, and they kill the child as well. Is there culpability there? Is that mm -hmm. murder? Well, this is where what the Canadian Criminal Code does is on one hand, it's trying to say, it, well, it's not a human until it's fully born. But if you kill it before, sort of retroactively, it can stand for its own rights because it kind of is a human. Well, you see what they're trying to do there. They're, they know it's a human being, and they're trying to stop people from killing unborn children. But at the same time, they're trying to prop up the abortion narrative, which is founded on the false belief that you're not a human being until somehow you filled your lungs with air. It's so weird. It's bizarre. It's absurd. So let me just read the criminal code for our listeners. Section 223, one, a child becomes a human being within the meaning of this act when it has completely proceeded in a living state from the body of its mother, whether or not, A, it has breathed, B, it has an independent circulation, or C, the navel string is severed. I'll pause there. So this is basically saying pretty clearly, you are not human, you're not a human being until you're You've proceeded out of the vagina or out of the uterine wall, I guess if it was a C-section, out of the abdominal wall, then you become a human. Well, that, that in and of itself is nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like objectively by every, you don't even have to. So here it's not even saying it's the air in your lungs that make you human. So it's like me taking my cell phone and saying, holding it up saying, this is a cell phone. But if I immerse it in a bucket of water, it's not a cell phone because mm -hmm. it's inside exactly. of water. Yeah. Like, literally, really? So it's it's spatial orientation, the fact that 
outside of the womb, it's not surrounded by water, and inside of the womb, it is surrounded by water, is what defines its humanness, which is an ontological reality. Mm -hmm. It's nonsense. But what I want to point out is that there's a marginal note in this um, criminal law code, and it's entitled Killing Child. And here, here it says, quote, a person commits homicide when he causes injury to a child before or during its birth. Pause. Before or during its birth. So that's interesting. So you're saying I'm not a human being until I'm the cell phone that's been taken out of the water. Mm-hmm. I'm not a human being until I've proceeded from my, my mother, whether I've breathed or not, whether the cord's hooked up or not. I'm not a human being until that, until I'm out. But a person can be guilty of killing, homicide, murder of a child if it's still in the womb. And then it goes on to say, and this is where it, just, it gets really bizarre and weird. I'll read the whole phrase again. A person commits homicide when it causes injury to a child before or during its birth as a result of which the child dies after becoming a human being. <laughs> like, what? As a result of which the child dies after becoming a human being. So the idea here is you're not a human being in the womb until you're out. But if someone kills you in the womb, an otherwise birth child can sort of retroactively, if you will, enforce its own rights to life while it was still in the womb. It's like, oh, come on. Like, okay, now my my brain's feeling kind of fuzzy here. Right, yeah. But this is the nonsense. You have to write, this is a. This is actually in the, the, the law code of a first world country like Canada. And it literally is nonsense. It's absurd. But that's what you end up with. You end up with absurdities. You end up with nonsense. When there's no God, and people have these competing ideologies that they're trying to promote and somehow protect, you have to commit all sorts of intellectual gymnastics to validate this stuff. Intellectual gymnastics, somehow somehow protecting the child in the womb, telling people if you kill it, you're guilty of homicide, but it's not really a human until it's preceded, so we got to come up with a nonsensical law to somehow capture all that. You're so committed to a narrative of racism that even if people of the quote-unquote same race, and again, I deny the concept of race. It's a Darwinian concept, but using their language. You're a racist even when you're killing people of the same race as you. You're objectively male or female, but we're going to deny that. We're going to make up other categories. Your species is not even objective. Um, People have no understanding of economics. We took the debt so you didn't have to. It's like, dude, it's it's our debt too. We're, mm-hmm. This is Canada. Whatever debt the government takes on belongs to the citizens. It's all nonsense. And you scratch your head and think, how how do we get here? Like, what is the cause of this? Why is it? Why is it that almost every other person is walking around with a college or university certificate or degree? But I hate to say it, we seem to be stupider than ever. Yeah, like it's an anti-intellectual culture when it comes to the most basic elements of reality, but everyone's educated beyond belief. Well, it's not uncommon. Most people at least have high school, which historically is a pretty high standard. And then university and 
numerous college certificates on top of that and access to world-class libraries and access to the internet and where it's like a basically a global library you can you can literally sit around 16 hours a day if you want just absorb information so how is it then in a culture that's not deprived of access to information we are so ridiculously stupid and absurd and why is it that our our thinking is so futile we need to think about that mm-hmm and we have the answer, obviously, you've, you've mentioned it at the start of the podcast, and we know there's a, there's a spiritual root to these issues, that when people reject God, they plunge into absurd thinking. So talk to us a little bit about that spiritual root. If you look at a little baby, so a baby's obviously born with a brain, and assuming there, there isn't some sort of deficit there, like some sort of... Um, a genetic problem or disability or whatnot. You're born with a brain. And when you're interacting with a baby, though, you're not talking to that child. The child has not yet developed the capacity to, or the ability. They do have the capacity, but not the ability to speak a, a language. They're not thinking. They're not reasoning. They're, they're, I mean, even when you think back to your earliest memories, there's a time when it kind of gets fuzzy. So I remember, I was talking to someone about this recently, one of my earliest memories, I think I was around two, and we lived in a house on Manor Road in St. Thomas. And I remember going to this big glass door in at the back of the house, and I'd look out in the what I now know was the backyard. I just, I wasn't thinking about those things. I just looked out the window. And there was this big, I would describe it as really brilliant blue square or rectangle thing in the backyard. And I remember being fascinated by the blueness of it. I really liked the color blue. And I remember my dad coming up to me and he kneeled down and he said, Aaron, don't ever, don't ever go near that. Don't ever go near that. You don't ever go near that, okay? And I now know that it was an in-ground swimming pool. Hmm. I didn't have the capacity to comprehend that was what that was, but that was like a warning. And then uh, another memory I have of that house is when I'd walk down the hallway, we had this wall in our living room and it was covered with like cedar shakes. And we had a this little blue thing that would flutter around in a cage. And I now know it was a blue budgie we had. So those are two of my earliest memories. And there was a couple houses before we moved into the house where I went to kindergarten. We moved a lot. So I would have been about two. And so I, I just have these vague, fuzzy memories, but then it's without context, right? So you're you're seeing a suddenly your consciousness focuses and you see a blue shape or a blue thing in a in a cage. And then over time, as your brain develops and structures itself and you hear language and you learn to speak the language, things come into context. And so I can look out and I could say, that's a blue, that's a pool as a liner. I know how it's built. I know how it functions. I know how to operate one. I know the hazards. I know the blessings. I know a lot about pools, but back then it was just a fuzzy blue shape in the backyard. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm speaking about this uh, uh, example because I want to just p- sort of point out we're born with minds, but the mind, if you will, has to be formed and shaped and taught to think sequentially. So this is a learning process, and it's it's subtle and it's deliberate at the same time. So our parents through deliberate actions or our caregivers through deliberate actions are teaching us to think, but also the human mind in in, in the way it develops biologically is going to increasingly take on structure as it 
as we as human beings interact with the world around us. We learn not to touch things that are too hot or to cover ourselves if something's too cold. So we learn experientially that also shapes the way we think about life. So this happens through language development, through instruction, through role modeling. Now there is some evidence that in intellectual capacity is partly inherited so that sloppy thinkers can produce sloppy thinkers. Or you could have someone that has like organic intellectual capacities, so they, they have a, a well-functioning mind, but through lack of education are ignorant hmm. or don't know how to structure their thoughts. And people then might say, well, am I doomed to fail then if I was raised poorly? Am I doomed to, to a life of sloppy thinking, stinking thinking if I, if I wasn't properly schooled, if, if my parents weren't good thinkers, if I didn't have people to teach me in those early years? And I would say no, because one of the beauties of the Christian life is that we're taught that God's word can actually transform the mind. Even for people who may be illiterate, when they hear God's word read or preached, mm -hmm. God's word can transform the mind. I'd like to uh, remind our listeners of what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where the word of God says to us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's a contrast there. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this, the Greek word there for transformed is the one from which we get the English word metamorphosis. So the emphasis there is that the word of God isn't just designed to provide us with good biblical content. It's not just a book about content, about the right content about God, the right content about salvation. But the word of God also has the capacity to shape the way we think, the, the way we process life, the way we, we look at life. So it's more than just the digestion of content. It's more than just teaching us what to think, but the word of God also teaches us how to think. It gives us a comprehensive worldview, a comprehensive body of information. And then, of course, the, because it's living and active, the Holy Spirit can take the Word of God and tr transform. So you can have a heightened capacity to think as you are exposed to the transformative, living, active, breathing Word of God, which I think is beautifully hopeful. Mm -hmm. You can actually increase your capacity to think clearly and process life as you spend time in God's Word. Mm-hmm. Now we know that sin also affects our ability to to see, to observe, you know, our, our natural given, the, I guess, ability to do those things is affected by sin. So yeah. how does that play into it? Well, we are we are living in a broken world, and a, a sin laced, sin filled, sin infected, sin influenced world, and the Bible brings that out when it when it critiques, if you will, the unbeliever, the proverbial Gentile, as opposed to the believer who saturated him or herself in God's word, it doesn't just speak of the effects of sin on the heart, the motions. It also speaks often of the effects of sin on the mind, our rational capacity, our the way we think about life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 reads, now this I say and testify in the Lord, 
you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. So notice walk is a metaphor for the actions that you participate in. So no longer do what they do. What's the source of the doing? The source of the doing is actually the mind. A lot of people don't realize this. The, the preacher that gets up and just tells his people to do this or do that week after week after week without helping them to think more clearly is doing them a disservice. Mm -hmm. So the passage goes on to say, well, you must no longer walk, meaning do as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. You see, there we have it. The mind, the way the mind thinks, directs the course of our life. It is life's steering wheel. So when our minds are spinning, going in circles, confused, ignorant, without divine truth, or being taught lies, or falsely being taught the Bible, it affects how we do life. It affects our marriages. If you don't understand the nature of marriage as a covenantal relationship, as Malachi calls it, if you don't understand role relationships, if you don't understand God's laws about money, if you don't understand God's very protective and beautiful laws about biblical sexuality, you, your mind leads you in directions that are destructive and dishonoring to the Lord. And this is, Chris, this is why. This is why we live in such a nutty world. The further our society moves away from God's eternal law and fallible, pipsqueak human beings are allowed to concoct their own versions of truth, the more we're going to see the kind of absurdity we see coming from the mouths of our politicians, being propagated by our educators, being supported by our judicial systems, and sadly being taught in our churches. Mm -hmm. So Romans chapter 1 speaks of this too, and there's sort of an extended expose there of, of humanity suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. So God God's clear there in, in um, Romans chapter 1 that he's done everything necessary to reveal himself to us. In fact, I'll just read from Romans 1 beginning with verse 18, where the Bible says, the, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the idea there is that when you look, when you look at the whole of God's revelation, as he reveals himself through creation, and he does that, it's says very clearly, being understood from what has been made. When you look at creation, we, what we call creation, it's obvious there's a creator. It's, it's a truth that we can declare propositionally, but it's actually self-evident. It's experientially evident. There's nothing wrong with truth through experience. I mean, the Word of God in terms of special revelation always trumps and adjusts and is superior, more objective, if you will, to human experience. But the Bible is, the Bible also teaches us, by the way, the Bible didn't always exist. God was still revealing himself before the first book of the Bible was written. 
that creation itself testifies to the factuality and reality of a creator, but people suppress that. They suppress it in their unrighteousness. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Listen to this, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their minds literally started to drift into confusion. Now, I, I, I'm fascinated by what it says in verse 23. Although they claimed to be wise, you know, that they became fools. Yep. This is so obvious in our culture, mm -hmm. Chris, where we get all these experts and educated people. And think about that. We, we do claim to be wise. And on a very rudimentary level, we could say, yeah, we have a lot of wisdom. Look at the books we've written. Look at the technology mm -hmm. we've developed. Look at all the sophistications and the biological science and engineering and literature and art and on and on and on, civil engineering. There's so much knowledge or there's so much information. We, didn't, we, we wouldn't have a, a long enough lifespan to know everything that just human beings know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're so foolish. We're so foolish because we deny the obvious. And then the final verse there says, verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry. We, we have to worship something, so we just swap God for that which is made in our own likeness, or then we diminish human beings from being the image of likeness of God even further, and we make other images that are supposedly in the likeness of God. So it's bad enough for those that are made in the image and likeness of God to worship themselves, but think about worshiping something that's not even made in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. There's no, no correspondence or correlation to the divine whatsoever. People worshiping trees, people worshiping rivers. We've even in the province of Quebec given personhood status to a river, a groove in the ground that water flows through. We've given it personhood. The climate cult, I call it the climate cult because I'm convinced it is a religion, smaller religion. The climate cult, it's this fixation on worshiping the created world. We don't care about preserving human life made in the image and likeness of God, but God forbid if a chicken lives out its life in a cage. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to practice good animal husbandry and make sure that animals are being cared for. But look, you could have a chicken. Yeah, maybe it doesn't have exposure to the outdoors and fresh green grass, but it has all the food it could possibly want and all the water it could possibly drink. And it has to do nothing other than pop out an egg every day. And people are just mortified at the thought this poor chicken doesn't have access to the outside. But they're okay with their teenager sitting in the basement day in, day out, playing video games, eating junk food with no exposure to the outside either. It's like, and then... You know, you, you could get, I, I dare say that if you this afternoon jumped on social media and posted uh, an article about someone that had stabbed a pregnant dog or had killed a bunch of puppies, you would get more of a reaction to that than the news accounts we hear from time to time of some deranged husband stabbing his pregnant wife to death or killing his child. Mm -hmm. It's okay, whatever. Freedom of choice, my body, my choice. God forbid that you kill a dog. I'm not advocating for killing your dog or abusing animals. That's that's actually forbidden in the Proverbs. A godly man cares, a righteous man cares for his his animals. Mm -hmm. But an animal is not a human. A human is made in the image and likeness of God. 
but we've diminished human value down so far and we've elevated the rest of creation so high that you get more angst when creation apart from humanity is supposedly being damaged than when human beings are being damaged. And that just says a whole lot about our corrupt worldview and the futility of our own thinking. Mm-hmm. Makes me think of the uh, the statement, the pride comes before the fall. Just even thinking about human arro- the human arrogance of replacing God's truth with our own human ideas and intellect, putting that up. And we take all the good things God has given us, use them to set up false idols, essentially, which then destroy us, the fall, right? Yeah. Good point. Yeah, we use our own human ingenuity. We use our the own gifts that God has given to us to bring dishonor to the Lord and destruction to to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know then the root of issue, and we've kind of explored that. Now, the hope-filled part is we can do something about it. So what are some of the things that we can do to adjust, to address, I guess, the the pig flying absurd culture we live in. We do need to pray. We need to pray that God would really bring about the lift the spiritual delusion and bring about radical transformation. It needs to start in the Christian church. Like we need more Christians to be more serious about their faith. We need the church institute to be more willing to speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth into culture to actually think biblically, to think in terms of biblical categories. This isn't happening. Mo- most churches, Chris, they develop their theology. Their, their theology is just a, a cheap knockoff of whatever's being reiterated in our universities or by our, mm-hmm. by our leftist godless politicians. This is why we see, it drives me nuts, we see even churches in our own city that said absolutely nothing about the lockdowns, the damages of lockdowns, forced vaccinations, job losses. But they're really quick to sign a letter about a drug injection site in our city. Well, you're not sticking your neck out. That's what everyone is talking about, mm-hmm. right? It's like whatever's popular, whatever whatever is cool in culture, we're just going to get on that bandwagon. But they're not going to stick their necks out. They're not going to actually shape culture. They're just going to be... They're like a dead fish in the stream. They're just going to be swept along by the water, and they're going to come out wherever they come out. Mm-hmm. Well, we we need to transform our culture, and we transform the cu- culture by preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ, which does involve the message of individual repentance and, and salvation in Jesus Christ, but it also is a claim, it's a political claim. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. So we need to preach that preach and pray that God would do an amazing work that we can't do, mm-hmm. bring a revival uh, to our to our land. Now, on a more, you know, what can we do level, on a practical level, some things that I think are very strategic. First of all, we need to think long-term. It, I, it, it's slightly concerning that everyone thinks, a lot of people think we can fix these cultural issues in our countries in a couple of years, if we just get the right person voted in office or just preach a little harder, do that special series, that documentary, it's going to radically alter our culture. No, it won't. It'll step by step, little by little, we'll make changes. Mm-hmm. But one of the most strategic things you can do is take seriously the task to educate the next generation. What we want to do is continue to shape and try to 
get into the minds of the generations that currently exist. But it's very strategic because they grew up so fast for us to take seriously the task to educate our children. We still have a lot of Christian parents who are not serious about this. They're concerned about the three, the five, the $10,000 a year tuition fee to put their kid in a classical school, a Christian school, a Christian school to homeschool. And they keep sending their children to the Romans to be educated. And they think, well, you know, if I send an email once a month and remind them not to teach my kids bad things, well, your kids are there hours and hours and hours every day. And they're being influenced and shaped, not just by the curriculum, but by the conversations they're having with their classmates, by the by the media that they're being exposed to. So we have to, if we're going to actually be strategic, we have to sacrifice our time, talents, and treasures to seriously, take seriously the task to educate the next generation. So shameless plug for our church is we have this not-for-profit classical Christian school that we've started at Harvest mm -hmm. Bible Church. And we're finishing up our first year this spring. It's been an absolutely incredible experience. I think it's gone really well. We're starting a full high school in the fall. We're just going to go for it. And we're going to keep building institutions of this ilk. I have all kinds of ideas for institutions we can build down here in our little beachhead. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is not fundamentally to protect our children from the ogres of the world, although that is going to happen here, but it's to equip them. It's a, yep. it's not reactive, exactly. it's proactive. That's right. It's not reactive, it's not, it's proactive. It's not hiding in our own little holy huddle. It's training up a new generation of thoughtful Christian warriors. And so the model is to not just teach math in a safe setting, but to actually teach math Christianly, mm -hmm. which many people don't even know what that is. It's like, well, it sounds good, but what is that? Well, we can talk about that. We teach science Christianly. We actually have a pedagogical model that dumps in information, helps them to, to debate and digest that information, and then to communicate that information. Mm -hmm to wrestle through the implications of math and science and language from a distinctly Christian perspective. And while we obviously need a work of God to arrest our youngsters and save them by his, by his grace, we're shaping the worldview one by one, 10 by 10, 20 by 20, 50 by 50. Every, Christ, every Christian parent should be thinking seriously about this. It's so critical to shape those little minds before the mind sort of closes. I know it doesn't ever close, but it's almost like when you get to a point, it's just hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Yeah. So this is a critical, critical, critical task. You know, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You, you can't even be wise. You can't be smart apart from God as your presupposition. And so we, we approach all of life from the presupposition that there is a God, just like the Bible does. The opening verses of the Bible, in the beginning, God doesn't try to prove it. This is a presupposition, in the beginning, God. And then everything else falls into place with that presupposition. And in the same way, the fear of the Lord, knowledge is presupposes God. 
You don't have God, you're, you're going to be a sloppy thinker. You might have all kinds of degrees, think you're smart. You may have a high IQ as measured by various man-made tests. No, you're foolish. The fool says in his heart, mm -hmm. there is no God. I don't care how many PhDs you have after your name. Mm -hmm. There is a thought when you come to education, I was just thinking of some people will say, well, I made it through and I'm okay. But then I would just, what I was thinking is, well, but do you even realize where your worldview is deficient? Sure. They probably think they're okay for starters. They think they're more okay than they are actually okay. <laughs> and secondly, if you haven't noticed by now, what took place in our, our public schools and even in some of our Christian schools in the 1990s or 1980s or 1970s is radically different than what's taking place in the 2020s. Mm -hmm. There has been such an absolute, the, the bottom has dropped out of the bucket. I mean, it is unbelievable. I, I know I was in public school for most of my primary and elementary and secondary education. And I've said this before, what were the big deals? The big deals were stay away from the smoking section, mm -hmm. don't date non-Christian girls, and don't pay attention to the teacher when you start spouting Darwinian evolution in high school, grade 11 biology. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe there's some kids that are going to swear along the way, but nobody was talking about picking your own gender or that a human being can show up to a school acting like a cat scratching around in a litter box in the tax-funded high school bathroom. I mean, mm -hmm. what on earth? This was unheard of. Mm -hmm. now, there were other evils in the world, right? The evils always existed. But kid you not, there has been a radical shift. And there is absolutely no way, there is no way any parent, I don't care how proactive you are, I don't care how involved you are in your school's parental networks, there is absolutely no way that you have enough hours in the day to debrief your child on the six or seven or eight hours of education and all the experiences attached to that that they, they experience in a typical public school. You don't have the time for it. They, the enemy, our opponents, have the lion's share of the time. If you send your kid to school from even nine to three, mm -hmm. so you got five, six, seven hours of education in there, depending on how many recess breaks and what the exact start time and finish time is, you don't have enough time by the time you pick them up, bring them home, feed them supper between then and bed to debrief them on all that. Mm -hmm. There's no way. So I know it's a ton load of money for some people. And I know it, you know, you may have pressure from grandma and grandpa and you may have nostalgic feelings about your time in public education. And at the end of the day, I'll just say it's your choice. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a critical error. If I have any, if you think I have any wisdom about me, let me just say this as maybe an older brother who now has five adult children. It's a critical error. It's a critical error to allow heathens to educate your children in those critical, vulnerable ages and stages of life where they're, even the way they think, the way they process information is being shaped by the language and the way information is processed and presented by the average public school education teacher. Mm -hmm. Critical error. Yeah. But you know what? If you don't believe that, you can make your own bed, but you have to lie in it. Mm -hmm. 
um, I, I'm just, I just wouldn't take the risk. It was different when I was educating my kids. Mm-hmm. Now, my kids, for the most part, went to Christian school for, for elementary and then Catholic for, for high school. I would make different decisions even now because things have changed so much. Mm-hmm. So take it for what it's worth. You might feel judged. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just issuing a, a stern, firm warning. And that is, I think it's a critical error to allow Caesar to educate your children, period. Mm-hmm. Period. So then the next group up is the young adults. And every church pastor and every church leader should have his, the, the sights of his, I was going to say rifle, but maybe that's not a good way. <laughs> the sights of his scope, <laughs> his eyes set on the young people in his church. Focus in on them. You, you, if you're 40 years old or 50 years old or 60 years old or 70 years old, there's such a temptation to just want to be around the people in your church that are kind of within your age group. That's a critical error. We should be building relationships across the generations. But a wise pastor, a wise youth leader, a wise elder will be zeroing in on that 25-ish age group, you know, give or take five to 10 years, right? Saying, what can we do as a church to invest in helping them to live wisely in an unwise world, to think clearly and conscientiously, to prepare them for marriage, to prepare them for their careers, to prepare them for their educational choices? They very, very quickly will be the CEOs, the managers, the presidents, the, the people running for office in our country. We're doing a young adult conference May... I think it's 17th and 18th. Or March. Or 17th, 18th. March 17th yeah. and 18th. A little sooner. Or, and um, it's going to be great. We're going to have uh, probably, I'm, I'm assuming, several hundred young adults come. I certainly hope we will. We have, I don't know, 150 or something in our own church, I would think. So we're going we're gonna to get the, the, the thing started. And we've entitled this Walking Wisely in an Unwise World. And what we want to do is we want to help Christian young people across our country not only develop meaningful relationships and being able to network with one another and feel that they're not alone, but to grow in wisdom, just practical knowledge. Like how do how do I think about career choices in this unique generation? How do I how do I think about money? How do I think about dating and relationships and marriage? We're going to cover all of that, mm-hmm. and I have an absolute re- unrelenting passion to see that the young generation, the younger generation, the young adults equipped to think Christianly about all of life. They are going to be influencing our culture. They already are, but they're going to be influencing our culture as leaders and high-end influencers very, very soon. So that's a very, I'm talking strategy here, really. Mm -hmm. So we got to get our kids thinking properly, and we have to equip our young people to live wise in an unwise world. Associating with clear-minded people, I have this little uh, wooden plaque on one of my um, bookshelves in my office, and it it has um, written on there, he who walks with wise men will be wise, Proverbs 13, 20. It's biblical. It's wise. Mm -hmm. Be careful who you associate with. If you want to be a clearer thinker, associate with clear-minded people. Befriend clear-minded people. Read books written by clear-minded people. Listen to podcasts by clear-minded people. Sit under the preaching of clear-minded people. Surrender yourself to the leadership of a church with clear-minded thinkers. 
It rubs off. Mm-hmm. Associate with clear-minded people. But if all you do is spend your time listening to the Godless Heathens podcasts, watching the, sh- the television shows that they produce, spending time on their Instagram accounts, following them on Twitter, well, you're not going to be very wise. Mm-hmm. You're going to be mad. You might be frustrated. At times you might be entertained. But we need to make sure we're careful who we associate with, associate with clear-minded people. Chris, other times, you know what the best thing we can do? Ignore them. Sometimes you just got to walk away. This is just ridiculous. Like, this, I'm blocking this guy. I'm unfollowing this person. It's just the nonsense, the drivel. I know it can be entertaining to see, like, okay, what – What's the the stupidest thing that I can possibly think of today? Let's go find it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Someone will probably have said it. Um, You still get shocked at some of the things godless people say or claim. But at the same time, staring into a sewer isn't the greatest way to live your life. Mm -hmm. Into the confusion and into the chaos, the chaotic minds of lost people. Sometimes we ignore them and just, we just have to let them bury themselves. We just have to let them burn themselves out. We just have to let them... Go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we give heathens and fools too much attention, it just fuels their following. So there needs to be some wisdom and discretion there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, at the same time, we need to be, again, back to being proactive, building strong churches. Like, make sure you're in a strong church. If you have to drive, drive. Like, get to a strong church, support a strong church. It's like, well, you know, the lockdowns seem to be over and the vaccine mandates are dropped and I can travel a little bit more. So I'll just, I know my church is compromised, but I'm just going to float back there because gas prices are too high. Okay. Okay, go for it. And you're not advancing the cause at all. Mm -hmm. So associating with and supporting, and I know people don't like this, but if that means moving, move. Mm Mm-hmm. Move to a place where there's strong churches. I don't care where it is. Move. And then starting new institutions that display life well lived. We got the school going. We're looking at the possibility of some sort of a Christian credit union or banking service. We need to think about starting institutions for post-secondary. Every church by now, I would think, should have put some thought into supporting Christian businesses and helping to coach people in the area of biblical economics. I would think that every church by now should be actively encouraging good people to run for political office. It doesn't fix everything, but it certainly helps. Equipping teachers that are teaching in the public school system to think as missionaries. Mm -hmm. These are strategic things we should be doing. And then once again, I'll just circle back around to what I said at the beginning, praying for repentance and revival, because yeah, we have a role to play and we want to make wise decisions and be careful who we associate with and take seriously the need to educate our children. Think long-term. You can spend all your time, here's the thing, you can spend all your time trying to convince, confuse people to be Mm clear-minded, or you can step back and teach the next generation to be clear-minded. And 20 years from now, they're going to be adults, or maybe even before that, and they're going to be influencing. And then you've just multiplied your efforts exponentially. But then we also need to pray for revival and for God to do a work that 
we can't do. And in all of us, let's just remain encouraged, right? God's on his throne. He's in charge. We don't need to live in a state of fear. The world is absurd. The world's nuts. But let's be sober-minded. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be clear-minded. And this in and of itself will be attractive to people whose lives are chaotic. Not all of them. But God will use that. You know, when people come into a church and they're like, wow, these people actually think. These people actually have stable marriages. These yep. people actually have stable finances. The kids actually seem to be enjoying it here. The young people are thoughtful. Their relationships are pure. They're actually championing marriage. They're actually having children. They seem to be enjoying one another's company. Like, talk about a testimony yep. to a confused world. Mm-hmm. So that's my word of encouragement. That's and good. hopefully people will be blessed by it. Yeah. I just actually spoke with a fellow that's been coming out to our church. I'm not sure he's a believer yet, but one of the things he mentioned was coming out and seeing some of those, what what you might say from Matthew 5 is like, let your light shine so that others may see your good works and glorify God. Um, and they see it and it is a uh, an encouraging thing for sure. And it's absolutely just highlights the, uh, the awesomeness of God's ways and uh, a well-lived life that he can provide. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you for each of our listeners today taking the time to think through these things with us. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show, we ask you to share it to be able to help reach more listeners. A reminder that you can hear this show over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. If you go to their website, you'll find links to their app. You can download that and hear this uh, podcast as well as many other great ones. And we want to make sure that you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.